The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. Now, if social justice is a couple of words that scares you to death and that make you worried, maybe you're a conservative and hearing those words is something that uh, bothers you or uh, causes you to give pause, then hold on for a moment, all right? Just give us the next 30 minutes here and see how we may change your mind on this topic. What is doing justice? Micah says in chapter 6 and verse 8, it's in the Old Testament, he says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, Micah 6 is basically a summary of how you live your life if you are a follower of Christ, how you're to live, how God wants us to live day to day, to walk before God, to love Him, to follow Him, and to walk humbly before Him, and to love justice and mercy. Now, I think the reason why this is so difficult for so many people to understand or to implement in their life is because these two things go against each other. Justice and mercy appear to be complete opposites. And how are you to carry out two opposites at the same time? And this is how God wants us to live, being focused on justice and mercy at the same time. How does one do something like that? Those, these two things do not go together. Mercy is God's unconditional grace and compassion. It means I don't get what I deserve. I thank God for that mercy. Justice, on the other hand, is God's righteous judgment. It means I get exactly what I deserve. And so how can these two things that seem to be completely opposite coexist together and supposed to be a key core part of our lives? No doubt it has caused tremendous confusion. I think for different groups in America, you can see how this issue has been one that people have struggled with greatly. Over the last hundred years, at least, or more, you can see how this has affected our society and our country, the United States. Conservatives hate the idea of social justice. They consider this a liberal idea, that conservatism stresses the moral, personal moral responsibility of every individual, especially traditional morals and values, and valuing hard work over a free handout. And they feel that the liberals, their charge of racism and uh, injustice are completely over, overblown and unmerited. On the other hand, the liberals love the idea of social justice. They embrace it. And they consider the conservative emphasis on moral virtue to be prudish and even psychologically harmful. And each side, of course, thinks the other side is smug and self-righteous. 
So because of this, I think that evangelicals, for the last hundred years at least, have completely rejected the idea of social justice. For them, it is a liberal issue. The only churches in America that have embraced the idea of social justice are the so-called liberal churches, the mainline denomination churches that have embraced this concept of social justice purely because of their influence from liberalism. And this kind of thinking has gone down very deep within people's hearts and minds within the church. I remember having a conversation with a gentleman in our church. This was a number of years ago. It wasn't this church. And uh, this single woman had come to the church, and she had a lot of needs, and the church wanted to reach out to her and meet her needs and lovingly care for her. And so uh, a couple of the the leaders of the church got together, and they formed a committee and a group, and they went and interviewed her, found out what her needs were, gathered money and clothing, and one of them sat down with her to, to figure out what her bills were and how the church could pay her bills and meet her needs. And so this went on in her life for a couple of months until one of the leaders of the church went to her home to visit her. And she said to him that she was completely out of money and broke and needed more money. And he asked her, well, where did all the money go that we gave you? And she said, well, you know, we wanted to been suffering for so long. We wanted to have some fun. And so we went out and, and I bought all the kids bicycles and toys. And we, you know, went and had dinners with the family and took a short trip to Disneyland. And so none of the bills were paid. And I still need more money now to pay the bills. And so he came back to me, and he was irate. I mean, he was angry. He said that we should not give her another cent. She squandered all of this money that we gave her, all the help that we gave her, and that's why she's poor in the first place, and she's irresponsible, and in fact, she shouldn't even go to our church anymore. And so I tried to explain him the biblical concept of mercy and showing justice and uh, it was very, very difficult for him to comprehend. And so you can see this thinking goes very, very, very deep inside evangelical Christians. So how are we to show mercy and act justly, as Micah suggests? And more importantly, what does this look like in our church? Or how should it look from God's point of view? I'm hoping to sow some seeds into your heart this morning on this issue. God help us. From God's point of view, mercy and justice are inseparable. When God gives you his justice, or let's say another word, judgment, he is at the exact same time giving you his mercy. And when he shows you mercy... He is at the exact same time giving you justice. They are one side of the same coin. They are together. They're always together. There is no such thing as his mercy separate from his justice. They go together. And that's why we see Micah including them together. And you can see all throughout the scripture, both of those two concepts woven closely together almost as if they're one, and yet they are opposites. 
This is a very non-human quality. The ability to show somebody total mercy and total justice at the same time. This is something that only God can do. It seems like we don't have the capacity or the ability to do that. And when we want to show some mercy, we always flub it up and always end up on either one side or the other too much. So we're either just showing total mercy without any justice, and it looks more like weak grace. It's just like, do whatever you want to do, whatever feels good, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. So feel free. Just do what you want. We accept you how you are. Be yourself. Do what you want. On the other side is a very harsh, judgmental, critical spirit, an attitude that says that you don't measure up, that you're a big sinner, and you need to stop doing what you're doing. So you see how we usually fall to one side or the other. And if you look at the church and its history over the last hundred years on many issues that relate to the culture and how the culture is acting, the church seems to fall on one side or the other. But very rarely do you see anyone implementing both at the same time in the same issue. Because when you do that, when you take the truth and you add to it mercy, it changes everything. It changes it completely. It's like the whole component, the DNA structure of that truth and that mercy, when they come together, form something different, something powerful. I think sometimes we spiritualize our point of view and our side of the coin that we particularly fall to or gravitate to. If you gravitate towards the judgment side, you'll say things like, love the sinner but hate the sin. You hear it a lot from people on that side of the coin. And perhaps there is no greater self-righteous statement than that usually coming out of the mouth of somebody who doesn't want to get their hands dirty. Sometimes we uh, want to appear compassionate and kind. And so we give a dollar to the homeless man. But we don't give a dollar to him out of compassion. We give a dollar to him so we can walk away. Sometimes we give $15 to the Red Cross thinking that we're being good and compassionate and helping out. But all these things are just one side of the coin, the judgment side. This isn't the biblical picture of justice that you see in Scripture. The truth, all by itself, is always destructive. You're poor because you have bad character. You can improve your morality and your financial state if you will stop living the way you're living. Now, those are true statements. Who could argue with that, that that is not the truth? For all of us, we recognize our own personal responsibility, that we are in the place that we are because of our own choices. It's no one else's fault. 
But that truth, that plain truth, always kills. It's almost like, in some ways, leaders today in the church have lost sight of the other side of the coin. And when you look at that side of the coin, it changes everything. It changes your speech, it changes your attitude, changes your outlook on the truth. Romans 2, 4. Paul said it was God's kindness that leads somebody to repentance, not the truth. In fact, he argues in all of the book of Romans that the truth is what's destructive. That's what kills. It's the law. The law saves no one. It's God's grace that does. But we're afraid. We're afraid to embrace the grace side because we've seen what just grace looks like. Because just grace is equally destructive. Just grace kills just as much as just truth. It must be the only way it can be, the way God says it should be, is truth in grace. The two together, not ever being separated. And so the next time you think about someone in a certain place in life, you think of them, about them, with justice and mercy at the same time. It's very difficult to do. But when you do, the outcome is incredibly different. So then the question becomes, who are we talking about? And how do we show them justice? Zechariah chapter 7 says this. This is what the, old, the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. So God then is separating out four classes of people in society. And he's saying, these are special categories that I care about. These are vulnerable people. And so when you treat these people, these vulnerable people, treat them with, he says, justice and Mercy, both included in this passage. We call these four groups of people the quartet or the vulnerable. Widows, children without parents, foreigners who are in another country without any support. So I don't have to worry about Bill Gates when he's in Africa. He's a foreigner, but he's fine. (laughs) So certain kind of foreigners and the poor. Now, today's, in today's culture, you could add even four more, and so we could have eight, realistically, would be refugees. There are an enormous amount of refugees in the world today, especially a huge group, 40,000 or more, of Christian refugees in Iraq who are being kicked out of Iraq by thousands and droves of Christians with the threat of death by terrorists. 
So refugees, the migrant worker, who oftentimes is here in America illegally and therefore completely taken advantage of and mistreated, horribly mistreated, the homeless, and some single parents and elderly. So you have now the group of eight. That's who we're talking about when we're talking about the vulnerable and those who need social justice. So how then do we show it to them? Psalms 41 says, Blessed is the man who considers the poor. And the word consider here means to pay careful attention to. Just as much as you would to anything in your life that is important to you, we as followers of Christ should pay careful attention to the plight of the poor in our community. And then to act wisely and successfully in regard to them. Now, vulnerable people need multiple levels of help. Like Shrek says, ogres are like onions. We have layers. That's what I'm talking about. Layers of response. The first one is relief. Relief is a direct response to someone's immediate need. All right, You meet somebody who's vulnerable. They have an immediate need. They need some sort of material or economic intervention. Homeless shelters. In fact, this uh, Saturday the 30th, so the last Saturday of this month, all of our community groups will be uh, joining uh, our ministry down at the Tacoma Mission, helping the homeless. Food and clothing. We have a recycling bin in our parking lot. I don't know if you're aware of that. Recycling uh, clothing and shoes and stuff like that. It's over by the south entrance. Foster care programs. Water programs for impoverished communities. This is the, the first level of support. It's called relief. And it's an immediate response to immediate need. The second level is development. Development is basically the same thing. It's relief, but for an entire family. So it's an intervention in a, in a family, every member of the family, meeting all of those needs, economic and material needs, or an entire community. So development is reaching out to a whole group of people that are to get grouped together for some reason or for some geographical region. region. In the Old Testament, when someone's debt was finally paid off, and, and it was very common in the, in the Old Testament to pay off your debt with slavery. So if you owed a bunch of money or something and you couldn't pay it, then you went into slavery for that person. You worked it off. And you worked with that person until the debt was paid, and then you were released. But God set a rule in motion there, and he said, Listen, when you release someone after their debt is paid... Send them off with resources so they can start over again, so they can start a new life. The whole point of it was so that no one within the community was dependent upon the community for long periods of time, that everybody would have their needs met. And then, of course, the third layer is social reform. Relief, development, social reform. Now, Think of it like this, the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you don't know that story, it's in Luke chapter 10. I encourage you to look it up. It's a powerful story that Jesus told. It's a parable, 
So it has one point, one meaning to it. And Jesus told it to illustrate that point. He probably made it up, but it was a story from real life. And in that story, the good Samaritan goes and he helps this guy who was beat up and thrown into a ditch. But imagine if the good Samaritan came back after that trip back into Jerusalem again and saw another guy who was beat up. And then on another trip, came back another guy and another and another. After a while, he began to say to himself, we need to stop the violence. It's one thing to help these individuals, but we need to prevent the violence that's taking place so often all the time here. And that's what I'm talking about in social reform. It's getting involved in the community on a greater level and a greater level of influence to stop violence, the oppression of people. Imagine with me for a moment how our community would be different if in every single neighborhood there was one representative, we could just say for the sake of thinking about this illustration, one person from our church lived in that neighborhood, and they were the designated person in charge of that neighborhood. And so they were, they were charged with the responsibility to uh, gauge the neighborhood, to check in with the people in the neighborhood, to find out what people's needs were, and to work towards helping those people. Somehow meeting those needs, or at least being on on an initial level of awareness and working toward helping the individuals within the neighborhood who were vulnerable. And imagine how our community would transform. All the neighborhoods that are represented here today and individually, systematically, through them, God was working to transform that neighborhood to minister and love and reach out to and show compassion and justice to the vulnerable in that neighborhood. Now, maybe in the vulnerable in the neighborhood you live in, there isn't anyone vulnerable. And that's probably true in my neighborhood. But then those people could gather around, rally together, and find another neighborhood that does need their support. And just think about how our community would change. Just think about the transformational power of that, of neighborhood after neighborhood after neighborhood that was transformed. Because somebody within Canyon Ridge heard a talk about justice and took it upon themselves to begin to look at every single person in their neighborhood through the eyes of justice and mercy. I think it would just radically transform your own family if you began to look at your family members that way, let alone the people in your neighborhood. I'm planting a seed in your heart this morning, obviously. I'm planting a seed to see if maybe God would call some of you. He would call some of you to say to him, okay, Lord, 
I'll be that person. Maybe you don't even know where to begin. You don't know how to start. And maybe you're the only one in your whole neighborhood. But then you could at least pray and say, God, show me what you want me to do. And and ask God to lead you to another person in the neighborhood who would agree with you. And now there's two. And something very powerful and awesome could begin. Neighborhood to neighborhood to neighborhood. You know... It's one thing to be here on Sunday and experience all the wonderful comfort of what we have here. It's awesome. Great music, comfortable chairs, they're so comfortable they can put you to sleep, right? Air conditioning, all the great stuff. But then to keep it all to ourselves and not live out and work out our faith in our neighborhoods, then we have failed to live out the gospel as God has called us. We have missed the mark because living our faith happens in our neighborhoods and at work every bit as much as it does here. 